Bluesfest has got to that point where we've been courted by Live Nation for many years now. I think we were the first festival they truly wanted to buy after the formation of the company and Michael Coppola and I go back a, a long way as friends in business and now friends. But so far we, you know, we, we didn't come to an agreement that I was willing to accept. Um, I'm not going to give Blues Fest away. And I've always had that thing that, mm, do I really want to be part of, you know, do I want to get corporatized? Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of music business to learn about their successes, mistakes, and how they operate at the top of their class. Welcome, everybody, to the Fear at the Top podcast. This is actually quite a privilege because it's our first podcast that we are recording live. It is awesome to be doing it at Australian Music Week, but the biggest privilege of all is that it is with the infamous and famous Peter Noble. Peter. Did you say infamous? Infamous. Thank you very Luke. much. Well, welcome welcome to Fear at the Top. Thank you, Seb. It's so, an honor and a privilege to be here. <laughs> so uh, for those who don't know, Fear at the Top is an Industry Observer podcast, and we sort of dive into how music operators run their business and how essentially we learn from their mistakes, uh, their successes and how they, um, and everything they've learned along the way essentially. The exciting part about this is because it's sort of a live environment, we've got a mic stand just there behind Jeff Trio and if you want to ask a question at any point, just go up and stand behind the mic and at the first opportunity, uh, we'll, we'll divert to you and you can ask your question. And so come with your heat. If you've got a great question, we want to hear it. So we'll get stuck, we'll get stuck into it. Um, Peter, I want to start at the very top. I want to say, you know, you were an international touring musician yourself, and then you came back to Australia to start your promoting company. Um, was Were you always like, I'm going to go back to Australia and start this company, or did you come back to Australia and go, hey, I'm going to give this a go? Well, I, I started as a musician here, and, uh, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to have a go, see how I go in the US. And then that led me to playing in some bands, and then I ended up playing in Canada a lot and uh, and one day this guy in the band the band leader he I, okay totally honesty I was uh, sharing a room with his sister on the road and we had a breakup so my future in the band was fairly short and they dropped me off in Portland Oregon and they said see you later <laughs> lucky I knew somebody that let me stay a night or two um so that's when you go and quickly get a, a job doing anything. I think my job was uh, cleaning the floors at Skipper's Fish and Chips, takeout. But I was walking down, I was walking down the street, you know, it's like 78, and I saw this sign that said American Entertainment. And I said, okay, I'm walking in. Walk in, I say, hey, I know how to book bands in the Midwest of the US because that's what I've been doing in Canada. So if you give me a job and, 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 and uh, I'll show you how well I can book your bands, all you got to do is give me a hotel room and buy me breakfast because i got no money. And the guy did. And that's how I got in the business side of the music business from being a musician. And luckily, within a couple of years, I was booking concerts and blah, blah. And, and I just came back to Australia for a holiday just to see what it looked like. I've been away for a lot of years, and uh, I was only going to stay for a few months. And my girlfriend at the time got a job down at the basement and started telling these people what I'd been doing in the U.S. with bands, booking everybody from the Ramones to, you know, to jazz, and and they just said, "Oh, get him to come down," and I did, and they bankrolled me. And so next minute, we're bringing acts out from the U.S., and I'm like going, "I think I like being back in Australia." And that's kind of how it happened. It's all just luck in a way. That's amazing. And, and when you started this first Australian operation, um, did you find it initially challenging to get uh, bands to commit to coming all the way out here and trusting this new operation? Or were you able to lean on the reputation from overseas to, to kick things off quite easily? Well, I've been booking a venue and, and, and every, you know, a lot of good acts have played that venue. Um, you know, everybody from John Lee Hooker to the police when they were 500 buck act. And, and so I knew the agents, but the hardest thing was to just get a handle on what Australians really wanted to see. I mean, I, I had a bit of a jazz background in terms of the talent I wanted to bring, and 
Australia wasn't quite ready for that if it was on the more contemporary side. You know, they liked the, uh, let's say, the more traditional artists. Um, and then as I moved into blues, that was much more successful. Uh, and, and then I started doing everything. I mean, I tour everybody from the anti-nowhere league to the suite. Um, and, and although I'm known as a blues guy or a roots guy, I've always worked in everything. I mean, for me, I, you're like, wow, I get to work with the Ramones. Incredible, you know? Uh, I mean, I just don't see music as having, like, walls around it. It's like you want to work with people that, I think as a promoter uh, and, and coming from a music, musical background, there's a certain amount of that goes into what I do. But there has to be a commercial decision too, or you're not going to be around for a long time. And just on that, you're very famous for introducing new talent to Australia, artists that other people won't take a punt on um, before they've probably really gained much momentum here in Australia. And it's always, at least most times, it seems to work out very well for you and well for the artists. Um, How do you discover these artists? And then what's the sort of, how do you you work out the commercial value of bringing an artist out who hasn't really got much you know, got much of a leg up here yet. How, how, does that, how does that process work for you? Well, you tend to get remembered more for what works and what doesn't work. And the ones that don't work, there's not nobody there to tell a story, you know. Um, but every now and again, I'll hear an artist and I'll just get into them. Like Gallant was a big one for me for the last Blues Fest. Uh, here's a singer that comes along and I'm just going like, whoa. And... Um, and we put them on sale in, in venues like uh, what's it called the Arts Factory there on Oxford Street, and we sold it out. I mean, it was all it was bigger than that, and so we just kept going. And then we went to the Metro and we sold that out because um, that was a guy that just in that genre of you know really great R and B singers, he had it. I mean, I, I can go back over the years, and I guess I've always been primarily a black or seen as a black music guy, even though I work in what's called Americana and other fields. And, and you know, I, I mean, to me, like, I, I've i always liked to some degree to two of the artists I like to listen to. I mean, I've, I could be a fan of, say, India Ari, and I'm going like, well, I think I can make that work as a tour, and then you have a go at it. And, um, I mean, right now I'm really excited about a tour that I'm about to announce for Hooray for the Riff Raff. And uh, I, I think that the, the lady in that band, she's Puerto Rican, um, you know, I look at that and go like, oh, wow, like that's, that's like waiting. The world is waiting for that. All, all, all we've got to do is tell them something that they, they don't know yet, but they, when they do know, they're going to go. And, and that's what we do with Gallant. I mean, artists like this are, are poised. So, so an artist like Gallant is a huge curiosity to, to me. Like you, you heard that artist. He he obviously had a lot of traction. Uh, it was starting a buzz overseas, but here almost nothing. Um, an unbelievable talent. Do you, um, when you book an artist like him, are you going? Look, when Australia knows about him, we're going to be able to sell these shows out. Or are you looking on data, and are you and are you getting a lot of? Are you letting uh, sort of data and metrics influence that that sort of booking? Did you see something in any in any sort of analytics that led you to know that that would work before you booked him? Uh, I've got to profess my ignorance here, and the answer is no. Um, however. That doesn't mean within our company, and we are a, you know, we're a touring company and a festival. We we will look at a lot of artists, and 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 there'll be people in my company might be going, Peter, you're off your rocker. That's never going to work. Um, and, and it's also part of getting your team into it. And I mean, I've just had a big one with Keisha. I mean, I really want to work with. I think a new album is brilliant. And I know that you know one's going to go TikTok, but. Um, but anyway, so, so to say that, we, we sit down and we go through it and we go, okay, if we're going to bring Galant out, we know he's got this one great song that shows one of the best new voices. We know Elton John's going like, that's the best new voice. We know Seal's saying that. But how do we turn all that into a commercial outcome? Um, I mean, that's something that we just get out there and work and we tell the story. Because but you've got to have you've got to have the product. I mean, you can't 
manufacture the product. It's got to be real. And then you start to work, yeah, the, the, so you start to work the socials and everything else. I mean, um, I just get a buzz out of that. I got a buzz out of working with Kaleo at Blues Fest a couple of years back, and that was simply I went to Canadian Music Week, they invited me, and I go, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to Iceland. <laughs> so I'm going to jump on a plane and go over to Reykjavik and drive around the country. And when I'm there, I go to a record store and I go, who's your best that you are, best Icelandic artists? And the guy's going, well, you might like Kaleo. And then I heard them and went like, oh, my God. More hit records than any other band in the history of Iceland. Just moved to Austin, Texas. JJ is one of the best songwriters. And I bought them to Blues Fest. It, it was too early. You know, they took off a year ago. And I, I bought them out two or three years ago. And but, that, but that's timing. Sometimes you don't get it right, but you've worked for your future. Mm. And hopefully they'll want to come back for me. And, and I guess um, that was my next question is you spend all this time working these artists who ha don't have any momentum here and you, you essentially create that and build an audience for them. Is there then a risk that somebody else will, will later on profit off your hard work? Like Absolutely. I mean, I, I bought out Nathaniel Ratliff and somebody turned around and stole him off me. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I haven't talked to that agent now for over a year. Um, and hell will freeze over before I buy an act of him because he backdoored me. And, and you don't do that to people. You know, you, you work with integrity in this business. And if you don't, you're going to really burn some bridges. That particular act, yeah, I'm the guy that bring, brings him. And six or eight months later, he's selling him to someone else. It's like, see you later, you know. And so your agency. And so would you ever consider um, signing uh, bands to like multiple years worth of tours? Well, you can't really do that. I mean, it's not how it works. Well, people say, well, I'm the promoter of Note. There's no such thing. I mean, I just announced Benjamin Booker a week or two back and somebody calling me up going, I'm the promoter of Note. And I go, well, not according to the agent, you're not. Um, and that's the opposite of Nathaniel Ratliff, but he hadn't been here for three years. Nobody had bought him back. And um, and truly, it's about the job you do with the artist and the relationship you build. And if, and if they feel that that's in their interest to continue that, they'll continue to work with you. We don't say at Blues Fest that because we bought you out to play Blues Fest that you're tied to that festival forever. We'll, we sell our artists to everybody, you know, be it Wild Madeleine or Blue Mountains, Blues and Roots or whatever festivals. We, we you know, it doesn't matter. And I have the same relationships. Um, I just announced Rag and Bone Man and... Of course, they, they played Splendor, um, and they're toured by that company. But we all, we all do business with each other, and and, I, and and then again, I'd never go to their agent or manager and try to go around their back. We just it doesn't work like that. But if they called me and said we don't want to work for these guys anymore, well, that's a whole different story, you know. Mm. Tell me about the Blues Fest uh, operation. How many staff do you have? How does how does the uh, what what's the company look like behind the scenes? I think there's about 17 of us. Um, it's always changing. There's always somebody else being added. But, uh, yeah, and there's a couple of people that work out there and cut the, cut the lawn and all that sort of stuff on the site. The rest of us are in the office, which is now on the site. And, um, sorry, I've got a bad throat. And, yeah, it's like there's a touring, there's a touring section, there's an account section, there's... Uh, digital marketing section, publicists, um, you know, d d people that work in all those areas. We have a CFO, chief financial officer, an accountant. But a um, week and a half from now, I'm adding another person, a new chief operational officer. We're set up like a business. And uh, did you want me to go into that or... Well, you no. just you just did announce that the you you hired you hired a very talented COO. Um, was that the case of you found a really talented person and you're like, we need him in my business, or did you go, we need a COO, let's find the best person for that? What, what was the what was the process in hiring that position? Well, I have a friend who's a very very successful businessman, and um, and he's always getting was always getting in my ear and going, you know. You, you and your, your life partner um, have 
formed and 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 moved this very successful business forward. However, um, you're still operating a bit like a mom and pop store. You know what I mean? Like um, you you you've developed your talents. You know, like um, I'm not with Annika anymore, but but up till June. Um, you know, she would do whatever came along in the company. If we needed to do some budget, she'd do it. If she needed to do some e-blast, she'd do it. And that's how we did it. We just took on every hat you could take on. But in doing that, you haven't formed your company right. And, and, you, and, you, know, and, and you, people are always waiting for you, you know, to get to them. And so, so you have to sort of form a, form a company so that there's a guy managing everybody. He's always there pretty much. He's dealing with the staff and dealing with um, whatever you decide as a company is how you're going to operate, how you're going to market your business and, and, and just set it all up. On, on the other side, you need people who are accountants so that when well, you're doing what I'm doing, so that they can really do budgets and track where you're going and tell you at any time, hey, you're going to go broke next week if you don't do something right here or whatever. That's how a real company operates. It's a, it's a set up of how you do it of people. And, um, and we had to get from, we had to get from like being music fans in the beginning to a professional company over, over time. And, I, and also to give up the reins a little to professionals. And Steve Roma, you're saying, is referring to, he's coming in. Well, it had been pretty much identified to me my need to do this. And Steve had been getting in my ear for about four or five years because he was the GM at Sydney Entertainment Center and, um, and turned that from a business that was having some serious issues into a highly profitable business. And then he became the head of the Venue Managers Association. And I was actually going like, are you sure you want to join Blues Fest? Like, actually a bit overqualified. But um, but it's amazing how these people come around and and you end up looking at them going like, I'm in awe of you. And I am. I mean, that's a, a very serious person in our business to have want to come on board and come on board from the 13th. Um, and it kind of allows me to do what I want to do, it, you know, which is just concentrate on the talent. That's what I'm good at, you know. I'm not good at sitting down with some people doing other things. And so I'd rather concentrate what I Doubling do. Doubling down on your strengths. Yes. <laughs> and, and prepare for the inevitable. I mean, we're not around forever. And someday I've got to kind of go, well, yeah, that's it. And... Yeah, so and have a company set up that it's operational. So, so what is your exit, exit strategy? Do you plan on, um, I guess, forever being a shareholder until you eventually retire, or do you want to go public, or do you want to sell, or what's your exit strategy for Blues Fest? Well, like like many businesses who are have done certain things. Hey, Ro, um, Blues Fest is got to that point where we've been courted by Live Nation for many years now. I think we were the first festival they truly wanted to buy after the formation of the company and Michael Coppola and I go back a, a long way as friends in business and now friends. Um, yeah, he's a really special guy. He, he always ducks the limelight. And I, I, I love that about him. You know, like He's not out there like... <laughs> I, you'd find it hard to get him to sit here and do this. He just doesn't do those things. He's just... Lovely man, but so far we, you know, we we didn't come to an agreement that I was willing to accept. Um, I'm not going to give Blues Fest away, and I've always had that thing that mm, do I really want to be part of? You know, do I want to get corporatized? You know, I mean, we've always been this fairly independent kind of thing, working with forms of music that are not totally mainstream for many years before we went more mainstream as our music went more mainstream. I mean, when we first started booking the Ben Harpers and Jack Johnsons, they were not mainstream artists. Um, sorry about my long-winded answer, but I'm still kind of a little bit, mm, do I want to or don't I, you know? Hmm. Um, and Michael Coppel and I had that conversation yesterday. He's going like, Peter, you know, it's been six years. <laughs> Give me Blues Fest. Uh, so, so just on Live Nation, do do you do what? What is your uh, view on? I mean, they've been a very aggressive player in the market. They've come in, been very heavy with acquisitions and and getting rights to a lot of venues and a lot of tours. What, what's your view on on a play like that in the market? Well. 
you can't say they don't have a place in the market because they've they've made one. Um, I, I think the only thing with a monopoly, uh, which they they could easily be, uh, um, is that there's a tipping point where everybody else is really affected. You, you know what I mean by by the fact that they've got, you know, they're they're multinational. They've got not millions, billions of dollars in backing. Um, they're going out and buying bands, you know, just here's X amount of million and we get you for X amount of shows anywhere in the world. Um, so those acts are pretty much moving into their uh, domain. It doesn't mean they won't play an event like Blues Fest, but it does mean that the actors really got to want to do it, you know, and... and um, in Live Nation's defense, I will say that they have not gone out there and put a wall up and stopped me being able to um, access their talent. But of course, there's that thing that, well, when you get to a certain amount of dominance, it's a bit like if you, if you, if you look at, I don't know, uh, look at your IGAs or something like that, and maybe there was room for an Audi, but you don't see any mom and pop stores anymore, hardly. And, and we don't want our industry to become like that, um, that all those in- indies and guys that don't really want to move under the Live Nation umbrella find it hard to be doing what they do as a, as a festival or as an artist or as a management. I mean, these guys buy into everything, Agencies, management companies, they own Ticketmaster. Um, and so within that, we've all got to, I have to accept who they are. They, they exist, they, they're, they're dominant. But I always have that concern that they could grow to a point where our industry is seriously affected to be able to compete with them. That, and that dominance. And, and what's the real consequence of that? So let's let's say it it it's it's it take sees, over. Yeah, and and so let's say they do take over, and we've we got one key player in the market. What what would that look like for both the punter and for and for artists and for managers? Like, how would that truly affect the industry in a real way? There'll always be independent artists. There's always going to be independent agents, and I mean, you know, we're, we're a fairly independent business. But once you get to a certain size, I think that's when you're going to have, like, well, am I going to jump over there or not, you know? And if I don't, what are my, what are my career paths? It's not at a point right now where that's uh, causing any real great reason for concern. But you've got to go, well, where's it going to be in 10 or 20 years' time? Um, do we really want an industry that you've got this huge player that owns... I mean, I think they got, they've got the 50% right now in the UK, haven't they? I'd have to check. I think, I think I'm right. All of a sudden, you know, you get to f- much beyond that. I mean, it's... You own the industry. Mm. Blues Fest, I, I, I believe, is one of the very few, and I, I can count them on less than one hand in Australia, uh, one of the very few festivals that I believe have really got uh, the emotional experience and sell right. Um, I go to Blues Fest, and, I, and, and in the best possible way, it, best possible way i feel like i need a visa to get in it's like it's a whole other city um you 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 truly have an experience when you're there and or you know we we experience it quite well at seven street media because we work with your marketing team quite regularly and you're really selling the emotion and the experience you're not just selling hey here's a big lineup you know buy tickets it's a it's a truly an emotional experience from the very announce to the fulfillment at the grounds um it's something that's very hard to get right and a lot of people don't even seem to care about that. Is that something you consciously thought about and planned or is that just something that happened to you naturally uh, as, you, as, you grew the, as you grew the brand? I think I'm too close to it. Uh, I, I don't see it like that. Um, I'm, really, I'm really happy to hear that you do because, I mean, that's... But I can't... You know, there's, there's no, like, master plan. It's, it's, it's to some degree... Um, I believe that if you come to a music festival and the first artist you see through the last artist on every stage is hot, then that will give you an experience that, that, you know, you want to have again and you'll tell people about. Um, That's certainly part of the plan. Um, I'm not into the bells and whistles. I mean, somebody wrote 
on our Facebook page, your site looks like a like a school fit. And I'm like, okay, I can take that on because we spend all our money on the talent. You know, there might be some lights and there might be a few stilt walkers. But I don't spend it on other things. I mean, it's about the music and that's all it's about. Now, there's other events that do other things and full credit to them, but we're just a pure music festival. It's about guys who are as creative, either on their instrument or in their writing, as it can be. And I guess that fortunate thing that I have from being a musician to transitioning into the business side has given me that little bit of insight that I can book artists maybe a bit better and the experience of doing it for many years and, and having ears that hear good music still I'd like to think and what is your process of booking artists you got a blank you got a blank lineup you're starting a new you're starting a new year where do you start how do you go about doing it well, there's always going to be some artists that I'm going to target, you know. I mean, I've been trying to get Robert Plant to come back since he last came and going, getting into his ear and going, you know, you've never done a theatre tour of Australia. It's always been in entertainment centres and we need to maybe charge a bit more for the ticket and you need to charge a bit less for your fee. But we actually allow people to see you sweat rather than, you know... Um, I mean, that to me was a no-brainer, but, but it took four years of talk. And, of course, they're not telling me in the background there's a new album being recorded and I wasn't quite smart enough to check or Google it up to realise that next year's the 50th anniversary of Led Zeppelin's first play. So there was quite a game plan behind it from their side. But that's an artist that, you know, I targeted for years. Um, and once you get a couple of those... On the festival, I mean, Patti Smith was another one. I worked on that for years. And my plan actually was to have Patti at the last Blues Fest and Iggy Pop at the next, but Iggy pulled. So I'm going to work f- f- on him for the next festival after that. But but once you get some of that fall in, once, once a few guitar players, I mean, the last festival also was strong on guitar players. We had Carlos Santana who... I think he did the best show I've ever seen him do. I've seen him do. And he had because he's and he's married Cindy Blackman now, who is a drummer in his band and and she is just I mean phenomenal. And she's on stage and she's doing a solo. And and, and you know, like he turns around and it's like, okay, he goes to count her in, and she just kept going. <laughs> and then he did it again, and he must have done it three times, and he just finally went just laughed and went, okay, I'm going to watch you. And, and, they, and you see those bands and they're really in the zone, you know what I mean? And, and, and I'm going like, wow. And this, and this is, I mean, even, even as they came off stage, there were people just lined up cheering them who were all the mob that could get backstage. And I'm kind of going, well, that, uh, sorry, I'll try to get Wanda back on the subject, but but that was a year when we had great guitar players. We had Buddy Guy, we had Eric Gales, who if, if you see him, I, I don't know if there's a better guitar player out there, um, and a bunch more. And, and so sometimes I just let that go. I mean, when it starts to be a guitar year, I, I book more guitar players. Obviously, last year, the, a lot of female artists were on offer, and I'm going like... <clears throat> Finally, I get to have a festival with more females than males on it. This year, I'm not getting offered as many females, which is kind of a little disconcerting because I'd love to continue doing that. Um, this year, it's like a singer's year, you know, so I booked Lionel Richie, then I booked Seal, and uh, because that seems to be what's happening a little. You, you kind of go with it a bit, you know what I mean? Like, and, and are you influenced by, I guess, what the agents are presenting to you? Is that is that what you mean totally. by we just go with it? Yeah, I, I'm. Well, the way it works, I mean, they're they're talking to me about what they want to play. I'm talking to them about what I want. Um, we're trying to we're trying to induce artists to get on a plane and, and come more than halfway around the world when they can make the same money in a tour bus a few hours away from wherever they are. That's a big thing to do. I, I mean, a lot of artists are. Um, quite dedicated to playing to a world audience there's other guys that don't really feel that that's part of what they need to do I mean there's an act called how do you say it Ray La Montagna 
Lalamontan. Man, I've been trying to get him for years. I think he's a genius. But do you think I can get him to, you know, just get on a plane and come down here? And that's... We all know the older ones, your Van Morrisons and Tom Waits and people like that are not going to get on a plane. Um, but it happens with younger artists too that just don't see that playing the world is part of what they really want to do. They would rather be Bon Iver. He's a little hard to get out. Um, they, would, they would rather be either creating or, or playing in, a, in, a, in an area. Paolo Natini, my God, I mean, I thought we'd never get him out, and we got him out, and now we can't get him back. Um, so you know, so you that's know, just part of it all. They're trying to, you, you, you want to work with people that want to work with you. So he's putting in an offer for an act that, and going through that big dance for many months if they're, if they're not going to come. And they've, de- they've demonstrated that. They're not showing interest. It's funny. I'm listening to you speak and, uh, and I'm conscious of the idea that Blues Fest, like all festivals and CDs and whatever, you're, you're selling an emotional experience. And emotion is what drives the consumer behavior to be able to engage with that art form in whatever format. In in your position, you're almost a consumer too. You're very passionate about these artists that you try to buy them. And so do you find you get caught up overpaying for artists you just absolutely love even though it doesn't make sense commercially? Well, yes and no. Um, I, I pay Buddy Guy quite a lot of money to come play the last Blues Fest because he's in his 80s now. And I felt, you know, I've been working with you for since about 1987 when I was when I, like, I used to be his promoter and tour manager I used to drive him around and we'd go and play clubs and um, and he became like you know the next king of the blues after BB passed and I'm going well this time I paid you a, some, an, an amount that you're just going to say yes on <laughs> <laughs> and then I find he's coming to Australia to play another festival next year for the first time in well I've been bringing him since 87 he's never toured for anybody but me and I kind of go like well Gee, I paid too much. Somebody else got him now, but he didn't pay that. That's the way it is sometimes. You, if you really want someone, pay him. But of course, that's got to work within a festival budget as well. And and the fact that there's a, a the, the whole market has changed. The older acts are asking for a lot more money now than they did five years ago. As as are many of the younger artists who are. So it's it's not unusual to have somebody push you for well over half a million US dollars for a play for an hour on stage, you know? Um, and people don't think that when they're seeing that festival, like there's many, 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 many millions of dollars worth of talent playing at it. And we've got to fit all that into a budget and present it in a way that enough people are excited enough about it to buy a ticket. And yet we can only charge them about X for a ticket before they may not buy that ticket. And you've got to take all that into account and make it work in a way that enough people come so you can do it the next year. Because it really is, uh, I mean, you're only as good as your last event. If they stop coming, you're over. Last year, my favorite artist uh, on the bill was Nas, and it felt like and it felt like you, you announced him uh, like two days before the festival, like it was very very short. And so, was that an intentional marketing strategy? Did you just lock him in when you locked him in, or did you just wake up one morning and say you wanted Nas? Um, two artists dropped out. Might have been three, but I think one of the, one of the smaller ones. But Neil Young just—I don't know what happened there. I still don't know to this day what happened there. Um, but one day, you know, Neil Young's all on the festival. Everything's fine. We're selling tickets. And then I get a call going like, uh, maybe he's not going to come. And I'm like, oh, don't do that to me. <laughs> Why? Um, and then it was like, he's not going to come. And I'm like, okay, let's prepare a statement. He's not going to do a statement. You mean he's not going to tell his fans he's not going to come? He's going to leave it all for me to wear? Yep. Um, in fact, I told you that earlier. I mean, his band didn't even know he'd cancelled. Like, they didn't know until two weeks afterwards. Mm. It was some weird thing that went on there. Um, and it wasn't good. It wasn't good for us as an event. You know, the fact that we then got to refund a lot of people who felt that they only wanted to go to see Neil. And we did that. Did you, did you get a lot of refund requests after that? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people felt that there's something wrong, you know, that the fact that you haven't cancelled an act, but the act is just 
basically going like, well, I'm going to take my marbles and go home and here's your deposit back. That's a bit like, hey, Neil, like, you ever think I'm going to book you again? But, but it doesn't matter. The damage is kind of done. And so to some degree, I was trying to find a replacement act that I felt was suitable. And then I went to that point of work like, mm, there isn't anybody. You know, there's nobody who could replace Neil Young. He's just, he's an he's iconic. And so I thought, okay, well, what else is out there? And that's when I bumped into that thing of uh, Nas was doing like three shows, wasn't it, with the Soul Rebels, the New Orleans brass band. One was at the New York Hip Hop Festival in Brooklyn. And I went, you know, that's different. That's interesting. It's creative. It's Nas is doing a one-off. Nas is a major guy in, in hip hop, and and uh, and that was about as different as to Neil Young as you could get. <laughs> but we had done Kendrick Lamar the year before, and so and that and that was a bit uh, controversial. Um, and I'm kind of going like, well, I just don't hear music like that. I mean. I thought what Kendrick Lamar's album was the best thing I'd heard since Eminem's album in, in that genre. And I'm listening to old music. I mean, I listen to country music, everything. And so Nas felt to me like, okay, it's not going to be Neil Young, it's going to be Nas. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So when you have artists cancel on you, how um, conscious and worried are you about it affecting the blues best brand? Um and what do you do to, to continue to instill confidence in your in your fan base and your audience? Um, it's, it's, it's just not preventable. I mean, if you're going to put on as many artists as we do over six stages over five days, the chances of them all coming, unfortunately, is probably some, someone's going to drop out. We're, we're hoping that that's a minor artist. You know, you never know. Somebody goes through a divorce, a kid gets sick, they get ill. Um... But you're always hoping that won't be a headliner. I mean, I think we've had many, 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 many good years, and then we had about a two or three year period of guys dropping out. We had the Black Keys, the guys, the drummer went and had an accident while he was surfing. His shoulder hit a rock, and they kept saying, we think he's going to be okay. But when I saw the x-ray, I said, he was never going to be okay. And you should have been a bit more transparent about that. He had shattered his shoulder. And the band has never played since, by the way. I don't believe. Um, uh, do the Black Keys still exist? I wonder. Um, yeah, we had a couple, and we're not looking for that to happen. We we just we understand. We were we, we're as a fa the, the fan is never going to blame the act because the fan loves the act. That's why they're coming. Um, so we're going to have to sort of wear it. And we're the bad guys, even though we're not the bad guys. And all we can try to do is present the best we can under those circumstances. And you can't always get a replacement act. It's not always possible. Guys, we have 15 minutes to go. So if you do want to ask a question, please make your way to the microphone um, and we'll, uh, we'll let you ask the question. <laughs> um, Peter, Blues Fest is absolutely massive. Um, it's it's actually just huge. Do you feel like it's hit um, maturity in the Australian market or can it get even bigger? I'm pretty happy with where we're at. We're, we're like a big boutique festival. We're not, you know, we're not a 40 or 50,000 attendee event. We're, we're, we, we get about 25 on Friday, Saturday, Sunday and less on Thursday and Monday. They're still coming on Thursday and they... Some people don't wait around on Monday, and we've learnt that if you're going to have a headliner play on Monday, you better get them on stage by 8.30 or something because there's a number of people at 10 o'clock are going to want to be driving to Brisbane or wherever it may be. You know, they've got to get up in the morning and catch a plane somewhere. Um, we've learnt that Thursday we do that a little bit maybe more contemporary, you know, and that's kind of just the way it's grown and... and uh, and we still got a few acts to announce on that day, um, but I don't really, I don't see it. I mean, I'm happy with it the way it is, and we 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 just find that twenty five thousand people on that site is just getting to that point where, if, as long as I book it right, and there's at night there's good headliners playing both the two main stages. 
it kind of works. But if I don't quite get it right, they're all in one end of the of the area. Too many people are there, and then that's a bit uncomfortable. But I don't see. I, I just don't see it as a thirty, forty thousand event. Now, once I whatever I move on, which is going to happen one day, somebody else might. But um, I'm kind of happy with it where it is. And it's not that easy to sell out an event with what we do. We're not a youth contemporary event for under 25s. Um, we're just not that. We're a wide event for all ages and family. So maybe there's some more challenges in that. But yeah, I think it's okay where it is right now. I'm not looking to change it too much. I mean, the changes that we find, we, we scratch our heads. We go, wow, we introduced TPs a few years ago and people like that, but but now it's glamping. And it's like, is that actually going to work at Blues Fest? And in fact, it is. But it's always a bit of a revelation, like, gee, that's what people, that, that's, that's who the audience is, you know, that, that principle we were talking about. Parato principle. So, for those who don't know, the the Parato principle is a, you know, if you think about aeroplanes, um, where there's sort of like business class and economy, um, and the twenty percent of the people in business class actually pay for eighty percent, uh, count for eighty percent of the revenue. Everybody else, the other eighty percent people, only make up twenty percent of the revenue. So, I'm going to ask you about that, Peter. Like, is Blues Fest does that operate on the Parato principle? Do you guys have twenty percent of people that make up eighty percent of the revenue because they're buying the premium tickets with the VIP and, and all of that. Um, American Express is one of our card companies and they contacted me and said, well, we've identified your company as being part of the Pareto principle. And I'm going like, okay, tell me about it. And and they, yeah, they, they've identified that this is 20% of our audience is well-heeled and got the money to... Uh, do things that the other 80% doesn't have. Now, we, we've always been a bit of an egalitarian type event. I mean, if you can get in front of the stage and you can stay there all day and I don't know how you're going to the bathroom or anything, but um, I, I, and you get to be in front of the stage and see the talent, fine. But what about the people that, for whatever reasons, cannot or do not do that? Um, and that's what the Parado Principle is kind of about, is that and you see it happen at Coachella and other events, which also have a well-heeled audience. And those people pay for an area in front of the stage, or well, they'll pay to stay somewhere where there's a bloody hot tubs or whatever. Oh, that's I don't see that happening at Blues Fest, but I but I do recognise and, and and that we must at some point take it on that a, a number of people who come to our festival want to get that premium position and they're not willing to sort of push in and stand there and and we have to adapt to that. I mean, as an event, you must always be adapting and changing. I just I just feel sometimes like, oh, is it going to be next year? Maybe we'll put it, push it back a year. Because it just feels like what where we came from... I mean, the blues as we originally were, that's working class music. And I'm kind of proud of those origins, proud of the fact that there were times when we brought in what's now called Americana music. It was called old country back then. Um, And and things like that. Um, And then you realise that somewhere or other, just like Byron Bay, like when I moved there, I mean... All the hippies were on the street on Dole Day all playing music and it was just an amazing thing to be around. And nowadays you don't see any because the money came in and they, and they brought it up. And those people that moved up there, the bit alternate like me, we're, they're all way out in the country now because they can't afford to be anywhere else. And I saw, so there's that, there's that you're, it's vexed, if you know what I mean? Like, do you want to sort of take the money or do you want to try to not change, but if you don't change, how do you continue to, to address the constant changes of costs in our industry? It's, I haven't quite got there on that one. And if your competitors are, uh, have these dynamic tickets, um, then they're going to get more revenue, which means they're more likely to outbid you for talent. Well, it's true. I mean, I just got outbidded on Lana Del Rey. I mean, I wanted her big time. And then the fee, they, I'm like, you can't, you can't get that fee playing River Stage in Brisbane. 
Yeah, but this is our FIFA festivals. <laughs> oh, it's a Live Nation band, okay. You know, doing a Live Nation tour. <laughs> so if I was willing to pay half as much again, I would get it. And that's another thing that you've got to look out for because that could be the outcome when all of a sudden businesses like that, and she's a Live Nation act, um, all of a sudden being outside of the, of the fold of the tent, you're charged a lot more. And you can't compete. And that could be an example of that. I'm not saying it is. But I also don't think she sold out. Mm. So I'm glad I didn't get it. <laughs> so well, though. Guys, I know there's a lot of questions out there, and um, we're all a bit too sure. shy to stand up to a microphone, but it is a podcast, so we need to record it. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to ask... I'd just like to ask um, about marketing um, a festival, like actually, you know, the best ways of getting a festival out there to the masses, <laughs> like whether it be print, social, um, word of mouth, you know, posters, etc. This guy's the expert. <laughs> but, um, but we've changed. I mean, you know, the old days where you'd go and get some posters and slap them up and hopefully enough people would... <laughs> Come, I mean, that's a long time ago. And, you know, you're getting your information in a different way. You're potentially, you're getting it, you know, through your iPhone, your iPad, your... Um, and, and so it's a whole new way of marketing that, that you have to be into. I, I mean, it, it, you want to have a database, members. I think Bluesfest has got about 100... We've got 250,000 members but we've got 110,000 that are active. In other words, the last four or five posts we do, they open one. We cull them if they don't. There's no use having 250,000 member database and 140,000 of it doesn't open your e-blast. I mean, that's just bullshit, sorry. Um, So it's a great way to interact and, and... Luke, you, you're probably more of an expert than me, but I had a festival going in Singapore for a while on the on the Formula One track, and I sat down with a ticket company up there, had a lunch, and the guy said, you know what, we're a ticket company. We're like Ticket Tech, we're like Ticketmaster, so we're only going to give you one or two e-blasts because we've got so many other shows. He said, but if I did one every week, you'd sell more tickets. And I was like, light bulb moment. So that's why we do weekly e-blasts, because we sell more tickets. And that's a way that you can interact with your your database, as long as it's not a hard sell all the time. You know, you want to keep it interesting. And then you will sell, you know, and then, then you could do an announcement. But that's just one of so many ways. I mean, Selling the sizzle, not the steak. Huh? Selling the sizzle, not the steak. Where you, you actually have, like, Rusty, Kim, and Jen in your office who handle your marketing and publicity are just, I believe, um, really at the forefront of festival marketing. They're really, really innovative, and they, they're really ahead of the game. They're sort of where the puck's going, not where the puck is. Um, how did you... How did you find? Uh, how do you find talent like that in terms of staff? Like, do you like? Rusty? Yeah, you, you tell me. Tell me about how you train, how you hire. I mean, these guys are, are truly remarkable. And, and uh, you say Richard in digital or Jen or uh, I'm saying Rusty, Kim, and Jen. They're, okay. they're they're the people that we interface with. I mean, we have the most experience with. So they they're just. What's your HR system? How do you find that talent? How do I work at Blues Fest? How do you train people when when they come in? Tell me about that. Well, this guy Rusty in our office, he does our radio marketing and, and other areas where he works with you. He's just a music freak, you know. I mean, at Blues Fest, chances are the, the, the person who's the contracts person, and, and she is, she's a monster funk freak. So she'll come to me and go like, Peter, D'Angelo's got this great new album out. You better get onto it or, you know... Uh, I'll get to Rusty, but or, or, or you know, of Prince's two bands, NPG, New Power Generation, is the better one than Revolution Band, his first band. If you want to hear them playing Prince's music as a tribute now, Rusty will come to me with artists, and they're just music fans. And and um, our, our publicist Jane, well, she came over from the uh, Canberra Theatre, and. Our, our long-term publicist had left the week before, and I'm going like, 
publicists are not easy people to replace. And after about two days, I'm going like, you're incredible. You know, like, how did we find you? And, and, and regularly, it's not me, it's other people in our office who are having interactions with people and they go, this person's interested in coming over. You should have a look at that one. And, and that's how it kind of happens. I mean, um, Kimberly in our office, was she was working over there at Luna Park uh, in the venue there. And, um, and I needed a new person in touring, booking it. And it was down to about two or three people. And I went way into her music that she loved. And she had acts like the Wipers, you know, that punk band from Portland, Oregon in the 70s that were just, you know, it should have been huge. And I'm going, how do you even know about that? You know what I mean? Like, who's heard of the Wipers? One, two, <laughs> maybe three. But... Um, and so these people are really into it and they're passionate and sometimes they're a total pain in the ass. Like they're on my case like you wouldn't believe. Um, but that's what you want in your office. You want people challenging you and if I don't do something fast enough, they're going like, how come you haven't done that? Like, so I've got an amazing team of people and, um, and that's why we are what we are. I mean, it's not just me. I'm just a figurehead. Any last questions, guys? Yeah, all right. If there's any more, just line up and then we'll wrap it up. Hi, Peter. Two minutes or something. I'll make it a quick one. Oh, thank you. Jeff Trier, so we got 10 minutes. Oh, 10 minutes, awesome. I'll He's take the my boss. I better thank you very much for sharing your experiences with us. It's been awesome. Um, I, um, I'm with a group that puts on a uh, festival in regional South Australia. Um, <clears throat> we're a bit of a pawn in transition in terms of our growth. Uh, a recurring theme of discussions is um, a couple of people are kind of going, oh, look, we've got to spend more money. We've got to get bigger bands uh, to sell more tickets. Uh, some others are much more uh, interested in selling the experience, who we are, maintaining our integrity. Would you have any advice or insight on how to tackle that? I think the first 10 years of Blues Fest were quite interesting and everyone thought we were making a lot of money. In fact, my partner at the time and I both had other jobs. And I remember having a meeting about eight or 10 years into the festival saying, are we going to increase our weekly wage from 500 to 600 or something like that? You know, everyone thought we made a lot of money. That's my point. Um, but we just wanted to be pretty pure in what we were doing. And, and, you know, I, I know I, I get accused of being a sellout, but that point, when that point came, when the, when the people were coming then at the next level where we actually started to make a bit of money after 10 years, um, I don't think you're going to turn around and, and, and knock it on the head and say, well, you didn't deserve to do that. You know what I mean? You worked hard for it. And the experience is always important. I don't want people coming to the event and saying, oh, I, didn't, I don't like it anymore. If I... If that started to happen and en masse, there's always going to be some people that don't like it, then you've really got to look at what's happening. But in the end, <laughs> I mean, you, you might make a conscious decision that you don't want your event to go beyond a certain size, and that's great. Or you're going to be open to see where it goes up to a point. I mean, I've discussed earlier, I don't want to go beyond, say, the 25,000 which is not a big event when you look in terms of the world. I mean, you know, go to Glastonbury, it's 170,000. Um, most festivals are bigger than that. But then there's a whole boutique thing, which has also really worked for a lot of people recently, and that the festivals have five to 10,000. I guess it depends on go to where you're, you know, make it work at the level you're looking at it being. Make and get to your numbers. I mean, it's no use saying, well, we're going to aim for 5,000 people and you get 2,000 because you've probably lost a lot of money. I mean, for us, we're aiming at 100,000 to 115 and we are very careful that if whatever reason the rate of sale is a little slower because of whatever reason and say it's looking like 90,000, well, we will be, we'll be allowing for that right from like five months out or six months out. You have to. 
if you want to be there. And it doesn't mean that the event's going to be a worse event, but there's a lot of ways you can save a little bit of money that's two or 2,000 people a day or something. But you've got to pre- make sure that you're not too far off what you, you, the whole way you set your event up. Your budgets must work. You're, what you're paying for your talent. Um, and if it doesn't, then unfortunately you won't be around for a long time. It's, so I, I guess what I'm really saying is it's, a, it's about really creating what you can achieve and achieving it. <laughs> and maybe not going too big too early. Because that's, that's a big mistake. You see these events, they, they aim to have fifteen or 20,000 people in the first year and they get 10. Well, that can really hurt you. And Yeah, I hope that's... Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask, after you mentioned refunding Neil Young fans' tickets Re- and uh, offering refunds for the Neil refunds. Young refunds of tickets. After the cancellation. Yes. After the headline cancellation. And uh, also perhaps overpaying other musicians uh, that came, elder musicians. I just wanted to know how your moral conscience guided your business sense how over you the years. decide how to do it? No, how your moral conscience, you're obviously a successful businessman, but how that has guided you over the years. Well, I guess in that area, um, one, there is there is a ticketing code of practice in Australia under which you can refund tickets. If somebody's bought a season ticket to Blues Fest and we cancel an artist, they better have a pretty good story if they want to get their money back. But if they bought a ticket on the day that that artist was on, a one-day ticket, of course we're going to refund them. We, we also don't advertise it too much but if, if you work in, this, in, in the area of the armed forces or police or a nurse and you get rusted on we're going to give you your money back because I thank people that are in those services um, so I, I think the consumer law actually reads that it needs to be a material change and that means that an event can't just move from Melbourne to Canberra and all the people who bought their ticket just show up. I mean, that's that's against consumer law. Um, the, the law also says that under festivals, and you might see when you see your ticket, it says that an artist may be substituted. Now, that's the truth. That's truth in advertising, and it's required. And, and, and so what... When you buy a ticket to a festival and a headliner cancels, if you've bought a ticket for the day that that act is playing only, you have every right to get your money back. And we give you money back. If you bought the whole season, we don't. And the reason we don't is you bought the whole season. It's pretty simple. Um, I don't know if that answers everything, but that you were asking. Sure, thank you. It does. And that's pretty much consumer law, which we have to know all that. We, but we, we get people call us up and they go, oh, my God, you know, I've been invited to be the best man at a wedding. And I don't go out there and advertise this, but if you've got a pretty good story and it's real, we're going to probably do the right thing. Because we want that person to go, you know what, when nobody else would, they did, and next year I'm going to go. talked a lot about money um, in this session so far, but is there any other factors you find with maybe not so much for your headline acts, but for your mid-level acts where you have them come back year after year after year because they're loyal to your to Blues Fest or because you find they're just really good with the audience? Were you playing last night? No. Oh, okay, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> what do we do about discovering artists? Is that kind of what you're saying? Um, It's more a case of, um, at least from the industry I come in, we have a lot of loyalty. So, for example, um, if you have an artist and you play them and they're at mid-tier, they might come back next year because they like the festival, they like the music, they like connecting with you, they like everything, the doors that you could open, right? And so they might, instead of going to another festival, they also might come to yours. Do you have that sort of loyalty with your mid-tier or is it all just about the money? Well, it's never been about the money for me. If it was, I'd be, I'd be a lot richer than I am. Um, I, I, I'm probably not one of those people that have made the kind of money that some of my 
others that started out when I started did because I've always been about the music. And it doesn't mean that I haven't reached a level where um, I could probably retire. But then what are you going to do? I mean, you know, I don't like golf. Um, and But for me, there's got to be social conscience in what you do too. I mean, the music that I've always been behind, you can pretty much say is black music styles, primarily. You know, I was a reggae guy in Australia and the blues guy and, you know, a lot of others. Although, I, you know, I tour bands like The Sweet too. But, um, Rhoda, are you here somewhere? Ah, yeah. Um, I mean, Rhoda and I would get into conversations down at uh, the World Music Expo in Melbourne, which sadly left us two years ago. And, and, and we just kind of nutted up, well, Rhoda wasn't working with Woodford people anymore and the Dreaming Festival had... Weren't you having some funding issues toward the end or something? Uh, no, I got a big job offer with Sydney. She got a job offer. Oh, yeah. Oh, you were at the Opera House. Yeah. Oh, okay, got you. Um, but, you know, I mean, we looked at doing the Boomerang Festival. Now, that's not... And, and there was a little bit of money coming to Blues Fest way after... What year was the apology? Nine or seven? Yeah, sorry. I think... Uh, all right. I think it was... 2008? Yeah, it was, it was after Kevin 07. That's what I know. Yeah, I think it was eight <laughs> or nine. Thanks. You're right, Kevin O'Sell. <laughs> so, so the apology comes out and Kevin Rudds makes this apology. Now, it was actually a pretty serious moment in Australian history because finally we said to these people, hey, look, we've been here a long time and we've really messed with you and we've taken your land and we've pushed you out the edge of town and we haven't given you a job and if you're walking down the street, you know, we're going to be turning around looking at you if you're walking behind us, whatever. We said, we're sorry. And it started something where we started to go on to maybe looking at how we interact with our original people. Um, there was some money around back then to try to get more indigenous music happening at events. And I remember uh, the guys here, what are they called? Sandra Chip Chases Mob? New South Wales events. New South Wales events, they're called now? now. Newcastle, Sydney, Wollongong events. Nobody anywhere else for money. Um, anyway, but there was some money for Indigenous. And, um, and, I, and I just said, look, I'll do it. And, and the guy gets on a plane and comes up to have dinner with me. He said, everybody else said no in, in, the, in the festival industry. And I'm going, why would that be? I mean, it's just it's a no-brainer that we want to have Aboriginal people doing their culture so we can all experience it. So anyway, that money dried up pretty quick and they moved on to something else and forgot about the original people as they always do. I'm sorry to say that, but it's a bloody truth. Look what happened last week. I mean, that's disgusting what, you know, turned full of bullshit did. And um, so we started this conversation about having an Indigenous event at Blues Fest and it's now turned into a few years of doing it and so I guess in that question about money I mean I actually don't even think about money in doing that it's like it's what you should be doing you know we should be I I mean we have this two things I know 10 minutes is probably up here she is a beautiful woman but let me let me say two things quickly one of the things we do or two of the things we do at Blues Fest we have this little weaving we used to have, you know, clowns and you paint your face. Now we have this weaving thing where you can sit down with an Indigenous person and they'll show you the kids how to weave. You know, might be... What does that do? That means young people are having maybe their first ever, ever interaction with an Australian Indigenous person and they might be four or five, six years old. That's going to stick with them and it's going to be like, wow, I had this experience, I want more. Or, or have a cup of tea with an elder, another one. I just sit around and talk, get to know each other. And so whenever we do it, we get this great experience as Australians with our original people that we can take it with us and go, I learned something. And, 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 you know, the more we talk to each other, the easier it will be for the future when we do come finally. We're the only bloody British settled country that doesn't have a treaty with its original people, the only one in the world. How can that be? We should be ashamed of that, that we haven't got to that point. It can't, it just, it can't happen. 
Aboriginal people just want to be hold the door wide open and say, come on in. It's that simple. If we worried about, you know, what's, what's that going to mean to us? It's just going to mean that we showed them some honour for being here first. It's simple. Right. Is it your turn? <clears throat> it's getting good now. Uh, look, I just want to um, let everyone know, I think Peter's being actually very humble here. Most of you probably don't know, but back in 1973, the first Aboriginal artist agency was set up in Australia. And because we were seeing this emergence of contemporary artists, Peter, of course, set that agency up. A lot of people don't realise there's been this long history. They think that the first band was Yothi Yindi. There were many bands before that. And Peter was managing them. And always, this isn't I love you, Peter Noble, even though I do, but... I just need to to say something because for a lot of Aboriginal bands, they don't get the gigs, right? And, you you know, unless you get that stagecraft and you keep building that fan base, it's pretty difficult. If you look at the last 10 years of artists appearing in festivals, we've done pretty incredibly well with a lot of our bands and, and indie artists. But Peter has always programmed First Nations artists at his festival before it was, uh, you know, trendy or before there was money given to it. And I think if every festival in this country took the same stance, we wouldn't be seeing this disparity in the market because what we have – and we see the collaborations, whether it's uh, it's Gurumul, um, you know, with – whoever, Sting, or it's Paul Kelly with Kev Carmody or, you know, more contemporary bands such as Busby Maru. When it's in collaboration, we're seeing there's an actual market out there and we don't even know what that is. We haven't even tapped into it. And yet we have the oldest language in the world. We have the oldest instrument in the world. We play host as a nation to the oldest culture on the planet. And I really think there's a great marketing tool in that one. Hey, what about when you're all doing dancing, you're all so competitive with each other. It's yeah. the best dance festival you've ever been to. It's, yeah. I've never seen anything better than seeing Indigenous dance groups dancing one after the other and trying to be better than the one before. It's amazing. But thank you, Peter. I just wanted everyone to know, though, that Peter's had a long history with supporting First Nations in the country. And I know many of you do it, but boy, it'd be great because uh, how many blackfellas are here at this? I think that's an amazing note to leave it on. And, and, And you know what? These things always get better. That's why I hate it when they, you know, they had to go for an hour because you start to get this conversation going with people and it becomes kind of we all get into it and, and they go like, it's time. Hey, Peter, I think I, I speak for everybody um, when I thank you for letting us enter your brain for the last hour. Um, we really appreciate it. If you guys want to hear it back, it'll be on the Industry Observer over the next couple of weeks. Thank you to Oz Music Week for allowing us to do this and thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter.